This is Geology Bites with Oliver Strumpel. We can learn a great deal about the bodies that populate our solar system by looking at them with Earth or space-based telescopes. This gives us images and spectra which can be very detailed, especially when captured by space probes traveling close to these objects. However, there are some things one just cannot learn without actually having one's hands on a sample of a celestial body and analyzing it here on Earth using the battery of techniques that have been refined for the analysis of terrestrial rocks. Harold C. Connolly Jr. is a professor in the Department of Geology at Rowan University. He investigates the origin of the very oldest planetary materials from which the Earth was made. Asteroids are a good place to look for such materials and to that end, he is mission sample scientist on NASA's asteroid sample return mission called OSIRIS-REx, as well as a member of the sample analysis team of the Japanese asteroid sample return mission called Hayabusa 2. Harold C. Connolly Jr., welcome to Geology Bites. Well, thank you very much, Oliver. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. You're currently involved with two asteroid sample return missions. Just to be clear, what is a sample return mission and why is it important? Sample return missions are missions which return extraterrestrial material from solar system objects back to Earth for analysis. We have solar system objects on Earth which land here completely by accident of the universe, as far as we can call it that, which are meteorites and also small dust grains that come in through the atmosphere. But those are actually delivered to us and we don't know the context, the geologic context of necessarily of where those materials come from. We have a vague idea such as you know that this rock came from a mountain range but you don't know which formation in the mountain range, for example, when you find a, a stone in a river. So sample return missions are really incredibly important for giving us the geologic context that we don't have without spacecrafts or in the case of Apollo humans bringing back samples to Earth. Can you give us a quick overview of the sample return missions that have happened so far? Yeah, so the sample return missions started back in the Cold War days in the late 60s between USSR and the United States. That was the Luna program and the Apollo program. And of course, as we all know, USSR and the United States of America weren't very good friends back then. So that was the first samples to be returned, first by robot, which would be the Luna program, robotics, and then of course humans in the Apollo mission. And then we speed forward to the early 20th century when we have material coming back from the coma of a comet, stardust. We have solar wind that was collected by a mission called Genesis, which collected solar wind and brought it back. And we also have Hayabusa, which was the first mission to go to an asteroid bring back samples from asteroid. And the Hayabusa mission was Japanese and Genesis and Stardust were from the US. Other higher atmosphere sort of missions have taken place and brought back cosmic dust spherules as well. Uh, but they're not completely off-planet expeditions. OSIRIS-REx has just captured a sample from asteroid Bennu and Hayabusa 2 is nearly back home now after having grabbed a bit of the asteroid Ryugu. Why were these particular asteroids chosen? So 
go backwards a little bit with the Hayabusa mission, the first Hayabusa mission, which went to asteroid Itokawa, which spectrally is an S-type asteroid. And it was predicted to be the same composition of what we know as equilibrated ordinary chondrites that we find on Earth. Meteorites that are similar to sedimentary rocks, but are cosmic sedimentary rocks made up of multiple kinds of materials from different time periods and different locations in the earliest moments of the formation of our solar system, believed to be the precursors to the planets. And speed up forward, we wanted to get a better understanding of another kind of chondrite that we find here on Earth, which are called carbonaceous chondrites. We don't have the geologic context for them. We believe they come from, or hypothesized to come from asteroids such as carbonaceous ones that we know as, for instance, Bennu and Urugu. So it was deemed important to understand basic questions of the origin of planets and the origin of prebiotic compounds, and at the same time to study how asteroids move to go to a near-Earth object, an asteroid which crosses the Earth's orbit at some point during its evolution around the star we know as the Sun, and rendezvous with it, collect samples, and bring those precious treasures back to Earth for study. So that was the large-scale picture of it, and they were both chosen in the end because they were relatively close to fly to, so the expense was more or less within the cost cap that could be done. Let's talk about OSIRIS-REx specifically now. What happened when it arrived at asteroid Bennu in December 2018 after a long two-year journey from Earth? So we had designed our spacecraft and planned our operations and our science thinking for an object which contained large areas, or ponds as we like to call them, of fine-grained material, centimeter to millimeter-sized material, sand-sized grains of material. And we got to the asteroid and it was anything but full of sand-sized particles. Boulders the size of 10-story buildings sticking up. Boulders the size of, you know, buses and cars and SUVs. So after a moment of panic, we regrouped and began to study this amazing object that never ceases to show me wonders that I never expected we'd find. <laughs> so when you got there, you found it was very different from what you expected. So what happened next then? So we chose the asteroid because it was going to be carbonaceous-like, something similar to what we have in our collections. And there is elements of that that are true. But the most important thing for us was collecting the sample, because we're a sample collection mission, just like Hayabusa 2. So we had to then begin to really look in detail at the surface of the asteroid for materials that we would be able to collect materials that we could collect in an area that was safe, materials that we could collect in an area we could fly the spacecraft to, and finally, materials that would have high scientific value. And of course, anything has high scientific value that comes back from the asteroid at this point. So we immediately changed some of our thinking about flying the spacecraft. Navigation was able to get us down to a very small bullseye compared to what we originally were planning to be a larger bullseye to touch the surface of the asteroid. We began to look in more detail and add extra flybys of the asteroid to home in with our camera system to find centimeter to millimeter size grains, which is the size range we need to collect with the design of our collector called TAGSAM, which is touch and go sample acquisition mechanism. So you said two centimeters is a maximum, it's like a little pebble. 
That's right. Yeah, two centimeters, at least in the direction that it can get into the orifice of the tag collector head, right? It may be a little longer in one dimension, but two centimeters is the maximum amount. And for Hayabusa 2, it is one centimeter. And can you collect finer grain material as well? Yeah, absolutely. That's the best kind of material to collect too. It's just like a reverse vacuum cleaner to tag Sam collector. So we have tested it and tested it and tested it and modeled and modeled and modeled for the collection of material that was centimeters to smaller in size. And we did. Okay, so you were talking about how the sampling site was chosen and there were obviously some constraints about what was possible. You know, obviously you want to avoid these huge boulders and get to a place on the surface where it's feasible to maneuver. But you also mentioned science value. So how do you define the science value of a site? One of the main priorities of the mission was to bring back a sample that is rich in volatiles and organic compounds. Because we want to understand how the materials such as water or prebiotic compounds get delivered to Earth. It's a huge scientific and, if you will, philosophical issue about why does Earth have as much water as it has, where did that water come from, and also, of course, life. And we want to be able to try to constrain that better by bringing back a sample of carbonaceous material, planetary material, with its geologic context kept. So we would look for areas of the asteroid that would have more, what we thought would be more of these volatiles uh, than another region. This is how we planned, but as it turned out, the volatiles are everywhere. So we didn't have to really worry about that issue. When you say volatiles, you're talking about material which melts at low temperatures, including water that's locked up inside clay minerals. And prebiotic material is naturally occurring, mainly organic material, which may have contributed to the origin of life on Earth. Naturally occurring amino acids are an example. So you actually spent two years circling the asteroid before descending to the surface to grab a sample. And during that time then, were you taking spectra to try and locate these volatiles? Yeah, we're using our scientific instruments to do all kinds of exploring. So we looked at the spectra from about 0.5 microns to about 4.5 microns, and then about 5 microns to out to 25 plus, looking at the different chemical properties of the surface of the asteroid. Just to explain, these wavelengths span the near-infrared to the far-infrared. That's right. We also looked at the heat distribution on the surface of the asteroid because, again, we want to collect volatiles and you want to try to make sure you collect from an area that's not too hot, for example, the equator perhaps. So we were constantly looking at the nature of Bennu. The big surprise was when we discovered in January of 19 that asteroid Bennu is an active asteroid. In other words, it is actually spewing material off into space. Some of it pops up, circles, goes. we can see it orbit around the asteroid for a day or two or three, and then it's not there anymore, so it probably fell back down to the surface of the asteroid. So that was a great and wonderful surprise. We had actually had a campaign to search for outgassing, plume-like outgassing, as you might expect in comets, because one hypothesis for these asteroids is that they're potentially dead comets. So we didn't see that, and even on the approach phase, which normally you would expect to see that kind of activity from a distance, until we got in orbit, and then we saw these active outbursts happening of just particles, basically. And sometimes it's just a few of them that pop off the surface. 
Do we have any idea what's causing those plumes? It can be things such as the pressures of the asteroid as it rotates around its own axis, which is about a little over four hours, that the material is actually crunching itself and the pressure is causing it. It could be that these are phyllosilicate minerals, meaning sort of sheet-like minerals like serpentines or for those people who may be really good with plants and they pick up vermiculite, for example, which is a sheet silicate and it expands because it has pore space that holds water. So it may be something to do with the interaction between the solar energy and the surface of the asteroid that materials popping off. So it's a great riddle. You mentioned that some parts of the surface might actually be too hot in the sense that they might have driven off some of the volatiles. What kind of temperatures are we talking about? And were there some thermal surprises for you when you got there? Not really as far as the thermal surprises go. So we work in Kelvin on the, on the asteroid. So it's something up to 380, 400 Kelvin. So subtract 273 from that. So it gets a little hot. And we have a requirement to maintain the temperature of the sample below 70 C. But the greatest hope was that our collecting mechanism is designed actually to go into the surface of the asteroid and penetrate a little bit and collect material from the subsurface, not just the surface. And of course, that's exactly what happened. We sunk into about 48 centimeters. So we probably collected material that's quite cool and maybe hasn't seen anything on the surface for a very long time, if at all. How much material was in fact collected? So our collector can collect up to two kilograms of material. We basically stuffed it full, probably two plus. And I say two plus because the collector also is not just a bulk collector, like a reverse vacuum cleaner, but there are little pads, contact pads, we call them, on the surface of the actual collector that are slightly indented into the head. And they're kind of a steel wool material that picked up particles. And one of the first things we did to confirm we had sample was articulate the three meter arm at the elbow joint and bring it back to the camera so that the head was the collector head was exposed to the camera's view and have the sunlight hitting that sample and much to our surprise and at some level delight and also a slightly bit of panic we were losing grains out of the collector head. It was so stuffed that some particles actually were keeping what appears to be our mylar flap that closes the actual inside collector uh, unit from material escaping. It was actually keeping it open because the particles were quite large. So the PI, NASA headquarters, Lockheed Martin, all the interested parties got together, went over all the data, and made a decision that the next step, which would have been to confirm the mass by doing a simple physics experiment of actually extending the arm back out, uh, or keeping the arm out rather, and spinning the spacecraft to see how the spin changed with the mass we collected, where we could give us an estimate of the amount of material we collected. We decided not to do that and to stow the sample as quickly as possible so that we wouldn't lose any more particles because our estimates was we were losing quite a bit of particles material as we moved the arm per movement. So that went absolutely smoothly. The sample collector head was put right into the sample return capsule. The clamps did their job holding it down. We then removed the bolt that holds the TAGSAM head to the actual arm of the unit and also cut the tube that had the nitrogen gas fire through it. And boom, we were done one week ahead of time. Okay, so the spacecraft begins its journey home. 
in March of next year. And all being well, when it arrives on September 24th, 2023, it will release its capsule containing the Bennu samples, which will parachute down in the dry lake beds of Utah. What happens next? Well, as we all watch it gently descend to the surface of the Utah desert, we clap very loudly and then uh, quickly uh, get in our vehicles and go recover that capsule. We have a couple of priority issues we have to do. We have to get into a nitrogen atmosphere in the field. So we have a small sort of field curation camp that will be set up. We put that sample return capsule into. We then pack it correctly with the curators and colleagues from Lockheed Martin and NASA. We'll then ship it to Ellington Air Force Base in Houston, Texas, outside of Johnson Space Center. And then it gets brought to the Johnson Space Center to the area once known as a lunar receiving lab, now the Astro-Materials Curation Facility, where it will be opened up in a nitrogen environment in the curation facility. And then we take lots of pictures and smile. So as far as I know, that curation facility at the Johnson Space Flight Center is sterile. Is that to make sure the samples aren't contaminated by earth materials, or are we also protecting ourselves from something potentially harmful on the asteroid? No, the main purpose is to protect the sample from getting contaminated from any human input or any terrestrial input into that sample. Asteroids do not contain anything that's a threat to human life. And that we learned in part from the Apollo missions, who brought samples back and lots of research was done on the Apollo samples, which showed that they've been sitting on the surface of the moon for four and a half billion years. They've been cooked radiated. So there is nothing there that is of any harm. So what kinds of analysis will be performed on these samples? That's uh, something I've been waiting so far, 12 years of my life. So the sample will be broken down into two major categories, the analysis of organics and the inorganic analysis. And in the case of the organics, we'll go through the usual steps that one does with measuring organic materials. There'll be some dissolution of the return material, there'll be some dissolving of it, and we'll be looking for soluble and insoluble organics, amino acids, sugars, etc. And then the inorganic, we will be looking at the petrology, the petrography of the rock. What is the rock? What does it look like? How do the minerals arrange themselves? And then what are the minerals' compositions? What is the structure of the overall mineralogy that is present in either the structural components of this material or the rocks in general. We expect that there'll be several different types of rocks, what we call lithologies. And we'll be looking for elemental, both major, minor, and trace elements, the isotopic composition, stable and radiogenic, the absolute age of materials, the relative age of materials, whether or not it is a material chondritic material we have in our collection or whether it's something we've never seen before or contains components we've never seen before. It's going to be really fun and we have two years to do that. And meanwhile, the curation facility in the first six months will be developing a catalog of the materials, coarse, mediums, and fine particles that will be released so that scientists around the world can request samples uh, of OSIRIS-REx to study. And our sample analysis routine is actually set up in a way that is for a mission of first in that we have a whole series of hypotheses that we will be testing by analyzing the sample to 
uncover and constrain the entire history of asteroid Bennu from material that was part of a molecular cloud before the solar system was formed to material that formed in the disk as planets were being made to finally material uh, that would be sitting on the surface and how long has it been sitting on the surface since the actual object Bennu was formed. Are there any specific questions that you're particularly interested in answering as a result of all these analysis that you'll be performing? I would love to see chondrules inside of this material, which are millimeter to submillimeter size igneous spheres that were melted in the early solar system that we don't really understand how they were melted. And I would like to also see the first rocks that actually give us the age of the solar system. I would like to see that material in this return sample and new kinds of what we call calcium-rich, aluminum-rich inclusions. And those are two classes of objects I've spent my career working on, and I can never get enough of them. They're beautiful. So these are some of the very, very earliest materials of the solar system. Is that why you're particularly interested in them? That's right. Some of my colleagues work on material that's actually older, which are pre-solar grains. I enjoy that as well, but I'm a petrologist and I'm an igneous petrologist, so rocks have been melted are my forte. I know it's a somewhat weird environment to form sedimentary rocks, but do you think you'll see some sedimentary lithologies in the samples as well? We seem to be able to see flat particles that are ejected off the surface, some kind of foliation or layering in some of the rocks on the surface, the boulders, and potentially even some of the material that escaped the sample collection head when we moved it. So. We don't really understand how meteorites were lithified. We don't understand how they were turned into rocks. And we're hoping that we will get a better idea of that process from the returned samples. So I guess this is a kind of oxymoron, but do you actually expect to see some surprises when you get your hands on the samples? First of all, I would like to see a, a different population of chondrules that we don't have represented very well, or certainly represented at a very small level that would be something that would really ex excite me. And I'd like to see that the lithologies we return, while the dominant one would be carbonaceous chondrite-like, there would be other material there that before we got to the asteroid, we probably never would have predicted that we would have found them as a mixture with carbonaceous material. And we, we know that there's most likely exogenous material, what spectroscopists call exogenous material on the surface of Bennu, which appears to be material that, that come from Vesta. So that indicates that in the collision stage, while Bennu's parent body was still in the asteroid belt, that it got banged by something that wasn't carbonaceous. It collided and catastrophically, perhaps, with something that was differentiated or melted. And there may be more cycles of collisions occurred. We know this. So just to explain, you mentioned there might be something that came from Vesta. Vesta is the largest known asteroid, is that right? Correct. Vesta and Ceres are two large asteroids. Vesta is the largest differentiated, largest asteroid period. And Ceres is a uh, large carbonaceous-like asteroid, which is actually potentially uh, similar to both Rugu and Bennu. And they might get there as a result of some kind of shuffling from collisions during the process of formation of Bennu, is that the thought? Right, during the formation of Bennu, during the, what we call catastrophic disruption that broke the parent body apart and produced Bennu and potentially cousins of Bennu or Rugu that are out there in the solar system. How that happened is potentially random but also 
may be related to the migration of giant planets at some point in the earliest solar system or much later on. It's difficult to constrain, but we're hoping with the, or our expectation is that with the samples that we return, we can constrain some of that time frame of catastrophic disruption. For my last question, I'd like you to imagine that you are in charge of NASA's scientific space mission budget. What would you use it for? The solar system is a big place. One of the areas that I think would be really important to explore are objects that are known as centurion objects or Kuiper belt objects that are these cold, hypothesized to be truly primordial, volatile rich with lots of ice and rock in them that are out in the outer solar system. Even so much as to go to some of the rocky moons of the Jovian planets and bring back samples to study, I think would be really illuminating for many scientific reasons. Harold C. Connolly, Jr., thank you very much. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. For more about Geology Bytes, as well as pictures and diagrams that illustrate this podcast, you can go to geologybytes.com.